We pick it up in verse 10 today. But I tell you what, for the sake of clarity, let's start from the beginning of the chapter. Let's kind of get that so that we could kind of dig into God's vision for this edifice. So it says in chapter 25, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet thread, or fine linen, and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, and badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. In context for where we'll pick it up today in verse 10, I'd like to present to you the biblical God. Different from every other poser, counterfeit, anything purported as God or of its sort. The God of Scripture makes clear that He's created man. But He's not created him to worship him. He has not created him to serve him. He's created him to be with him. And God throughout all Scripture is in hot pursuit of a person who is in hot pursuit of everything else but him. And whether that is the song in the morning that He's written for you. Whether that's the flowers He has growing in your garden as a bouquet. Whether that's the smile of a friend or the song that connects with your heart. Whether it's the the warmth of a voice on the other side of the mobile. We have traces in all of our day as well of a God who did not create you to be alone, to be an island, to be isolated, but a God who created you for fellowship. It is of all of your appetites the most primal. True, you will need to breathe, you will need to eat, you will need to drink to stay alive. But without honest companionship, you really won't feel a great drive to eat, drink, or breathe. And the hole that He placed within you can only be satisfied, because it's too large for anyone else, can only be satisfied by Him. But here's the crazy part. In God's heart, there's a hole too. And that hole is only U-shaped. Not just the world shaped, not just Calvary Chapel shaped, not just Jamaican shaped, not Jamaican, British shaped, not British, American shaped, whatever it is. It's you shaped. There's a spot of God's gigantic heart that's just wand shaped. You can't fit in it, or you could fit in it but not fill it up. There's a space for each of you. 
And this particular God has not asked for you to mindlessly act out performance after performance that somehow in all of this, maybe by the end of it all, he'll decide whether it was enough. So that somehow in it, he doesn't send you to eternal damnation, but instead sends you to a place where everything you could want is given to you. M&M's, those beautiful frozen Mars candy bars that are ice cream. Everybody's nice. Only green lights. No parking tickets. Petrol is free. No traffic. If all of those things existed, but God wasn't there, you'd never be sick. It wouldn't be heaven. Now please understand, God created you so you could be with Him. Jesus died for you so you could be with Him. God has interposed time and space to be with you. Everything in God's mind and heart revolves around you being with Him. And that is so different from church. But not for God. God first has to do what you cannot do. Get you out of your slavery. Get me out of my slavery. Get me out of my bondage. There was nothing Israel could do to get themselves out of Egypt. No matter how hard they fought, which they wouldn't have because they had been dominated for four centuries, they would not have even tried. Oh, they wanted deliverance. They wanted it desperately. But they were powerless to do it. No matter how big and strong they thought they were, Egypt was just bigger and stronger. And it's like coming up after a really bad surf and you're just trying to get on your board to not die and the next wave drills you and you come up for air and the next wave drills you. And there's sooner or later where you kind of have to surrender to the current because you'll never really come up and get a good breath on its own. God has to deliver you. But since you were created to be with Him, and because He loves you, He was willing to pay whatever was necessary to have you. And it cost Him His only begotten Son. And because Jesus was willing to die on the cross, and can I just say as a father, because the father was willing to send him. I can honestly tell you, I may love you enough to die for you, but I don't love you enough to kill my child for you. I can't fathom that kind of love. But he can. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We give Jesus lots of credit, and, re- and rightly so. I just think that the father never gets any. He's the one who watched his son tortured. Now listen. That price was to be paid so you could be with him because we all like sheep have gone astray, each to our own iniquities, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. 
Jesus willingly volunteered to take your and my filth to pay for it so that the righteous judge could say, it's been paid. 1,400 years before Jesus comes in the flesh, God is already making clear. What can I just say? From the beginning of the invention of man, God's made clear that he wants to be with him. When God made Adam, he didn't make Adam and say, now perform and maybe we'll hang out. From the moment that Adam was breathing, God was making contact with him. It was in his sinful state. God did not want him to dwell eternally. So here we are now, 1,400 years before, roughly, before Jesus would come in the flesh. And here now, outside of Egypt, he's pulled us out of the land of bondage, out of the land of slavery. And now he starts to move us into a whole new world. There is a journey to take from the front of this tabernacle all the way to the end of it. Interesting. God is so excited about being with you. He starts with the place where you meet. Imagine if God said, I'm going to build and I'm going to raise up a brand new island. And on that island, there is going to be a row of shops. And in those shops, there's going to be a Hawaiian barbecue restaurant. And there I'm going to meet with you next week on Tuesday. Now let me tell you a little bit more about the island. God doesn't start with the island. He doesn't start with the row of shops. He starts at the place he's going to meet you. Do you see how excited he is about this? And if you've got a God that's just distant and aloof, that is uninvolved, uncaring, can I just say, you got the wrong one. This one said, I love you, and I said, prove it, and God said, all right, and he died. I said, okay, I believe you. In the first nine verses, he tells us, we're going to meet. Would you? But I'm looking for your willingness. Your willingness to let me. Your willingness to hand over things of this world, and in return for that, I want to go and make my home in the space that will be provided, given as a result of it. And now he gets to the first piece of furniture. And the first piece of furniture is the third ark in Scripture. I find it interesting if you think about it, the first ark, who can tell me in Scripture who was involved with the first ark? Noah, excellent. Who can tell me who was involved with the second ark? Excellent. Good pastor's life. I love you for that. Moses, if you remember, Moses was put in an ark. If you remember, in the first case, God used an ark to save us from his wrath. In the second case, God used an ark to save us from man's wrath. And now God will use an ark to meet us. Verse 10, read it with me, would you please? They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And I know what you're thinking. That should be easy. They're just cubits. What in the world is a cubit? A cubit is a measure. Let's develop that for just a second. The average person back then was roughly about five and a half feet tall. Now, for what it's worth, that's roughly 167, 68 centimeters. Is there anyone in this room that knows they're roughly 167, 68 centimeters? Anyone? One, two, are you really? No, you're taller. Are you really? You think so? Think so as well? So you're five and a half feet tall? Roughly? 
Okay, well, come on up here for a second, Irina. Everyone, this is Irina, five and a half feet tall. There you go, 167, 68 centimeters. A building measurement was on your arm. There are three primary measurements. You ready for this? The first one. Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Um, see, I was a big brother. I really wasn't. I was a little brother. The first one is a cubit. And the cubit is this distance. It is from the tip of your elbow to the longest point of your fingers. That is a cubit. We'll use a term here often, the fatal cubit. And the reason is, and I won't hit you, don't worry. If you put that where your head is, that makes its way to just about where your heart is. Because often we tend to know so much up here, but it tends not to travel that fatal cubit to your heart. Does that make sense? So we say, pray that God bridge that fatal cubit. Like our brains are full of information and our hearts are vacant. So this is a cubit. By the way, roughly about a foot and a half. Roughly about 46 uh, centimeters. That's the idea of it. The second is a span. This is a span. A span then is the distance between the end, the, the end of your thumb and the end of your pinky. That's a span as well. Those are the two most common. There'll be one actually that will be this, but just to say, these are the two that you should know. So, and there's this, this, and this is jazz hand. All right, so, now, follow me on this, because let me just tell you about a couple things, because God actually uses this one, this span, because when God did this, do you know what he saw? According to Isaiah 40, the universe. Because it says that in God's hollow of his hand, he holds all of the seas, all of the water. And by the way, there's so much water we have yet to discover. Are you aware of that? Because it tells us that God separated the waters. There's waters above us somewhere. We have yet to, where in the world are they? I don't know. We'll find them someday. Now, they're all, they all just sit here, but it says that he marked the universe by this. Now, here's the crazy part. You know, you talk about if you've given your life to Christ, you talk about how important it is to hold on to the Lord. I've got to really hold on to But Jesus says that no one is able to snatch him out of my hand. This hand that holds the whole universe has you in here. Who's going to get that out? I'll never see things right now. Now, follow me in this. I would much rather be right in the center of this hand than get spanked by it any day. How about you? I mean, when God spanks you with that, y'all going to know it. Now, so we kind of got the idea of a span. So, now, granted, you should probably be thankful. It's not my span. Things would be much larger, as you might imagine. I have quite, quite a span. Now, so they should make an arc of, an, of acacia wood, the shittim wood. It's a very, very hard wood. It endures, by the way, weather changes and uh, humidity changes quite well. About two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half will be its width, and a cubit and a half shall be its height, and you will overlay it with pure gold. Why pure gold? Does God just really love pure gold? Does he want this thing to look like the Vatican? Why? Well, understand, God is going to be building on something. He's building on a pretense that we'll get by the time we get to 1 Peter chapter 1. When he says this, ultimately to verse 7, where he says, Don't be surprised when you are encountering all of these various fiery trials. These have come that your faith, which is of greater value even than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, would be proven genuine and result in honor, praise, and glory, or praise, honor, and glory when Christ is revealed. Now, when he tells us this, that ultimately he looks at gold and he sees faith because gold is purified in fire. It is made less rigid in fire and ultimately will reflect the face of the one who puts it in the fire when it's pure. And understand, God wants our faith that way. And so when, when you kind of get the idea of this, when God looks at all this, I kind of see him bathing the whole thing in faith. And here it is, there's this box. 
And this box is, again, as we see it here, roughly three and three quarter feet by two and a quarter feet by two and a quarter feet. And the whole thing is covered inside and outside in gold. It says, you overlay it in pure gold inside and overlay it, and you shall make a molding around it. Now, a molding ultimately will help hold something like a lid. You'll put four rings around it of gold for it, and you shall put them in the four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings shall be on the other side, and you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles and the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be on the rings of the ark, and they shall never be taken from them. You shall put the ark of the testimony, which I shall give you. Now, notice on this, by the way, God knows exactly how this thing not only is to look, and he was actually going to give blueprints, in essence, and fill two specific eyes with the Holy Spirit to do it. He is leaving no room for a margin of error when this thing gets done. But understand, and one thing he makes clear is even how it's to be transported. There is only one way this is going to be transported. Does anyone know the way that this must be carried? I guess I gave it away, didn't I? On the shoulders of men. You can't put it in a cart. You can't throw it in your boot. You can't hire a lorry. It's not going to happen. The only way that this is going to be carried is on the shoulders of men. Because this is where God wants to meet with you. Notice in verse 16 he says, You shall put the ark in the ark, the testimony that I'm going to give you. Ultimately, we know that God is going to give Moses two tablets and say, take these two tablets and call me in the morning. Now, ultimately, he'll break those tablets. And I think that's interesting because on those tablets will be the law. And in this box will be the testimony of a broken law. So I think, well, wait a minute. God wants to meet us in a gold box covered in faith. A box He's going to meet us on top of a broken law? God says, well, there's one other thing you need to know. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. And though for what it's worth, the word gold here is a word that, or the word um, mercy seat simply means lid, by the way. And there's a lid, and this thing is going to be two and a half cubits in length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Hammered work, you shall make them the two ends of the mercy seat. You shall make one chair, but one end, the other chair, but the other end. You shall make with the cherub at the ends of it one piece, the mercy seat in between. Now this isn't the first time God has mentioned cherubim, it's actually the second. The first, by the way, and I find this interesting, if we had any concept or recollection of all of the history, which isn't much up to this point, we'd be reminded at the fall of Adam and Eve, and when they were removed from the garden, can, I, can anyone tell me, why God removed Adam and Eve from the garden? Excellent job, Marcia. Because God says, lest they eat of the tree of life. And you think, well, wouldn't they want to eat of the tree of life? God said, on the day you eat of this, you'll die, wouldn't you? Because God doesn't want you spending eternity in that sinful state. It's the last thing he wants. How does a sinful man dwell with a perfect holy God? Well, God's got enough holiness to share. And as they are removed, Adam and his wife, from this garden, Eden, Chiden, which means pleasure, God posts cherubim on the two ends of the entrance. Interesting. Two cherubim. Now understand, cherubim is different from an angel. I'm going to say something, please, because I haven't said it yet. Please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say it. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Because I'm going to say something you're going to have to wig out on for a moment, perhaps. 
angel is not a species. Angel is an occupation. Never forget that. Angelos means messenger. It's that simple. As a matter of fact, the word for good was ev or you. If you add that before it, it's an evangelist or an evangelist. An evangelist, I would not expect to be a cherub, although it could be. An evangelist is just a good messenger. Twice in the Gospels we'll read that John the Baptist sent messengers to ask Jesus, are you the one? That word's the same, angelas. Cherub is a species. It's some heavenly being. The one thing I'm fairly confident in, but I can't totally prove it through Scripture, but I'm fairly confident is they're not little naked winged babies. Fairly confident that somehow during the Renaissance somebody wasn't totally enlightened with the concept. They appear to be a little quicker than that and a little more daunting because it appears as if when these guys appear, people tend to freak out. Now, maybe you'd freak out at a bunch of flying little naked babies. That would be weird. I would probably check and see what I ate. But they tend to be a little more daunting. The two that tend to be species are seraph and cherub. Cherub, by the way, it's an individual at one. Im is plural. Goim means a Gentile, somebody who's not Jewish. Goim is plural. Cherub is one. Cherubim is two. So you don't have to say cherubims, because that's saying two, two, right? It's pearling the pearling. On the other side of that, God will speak about seraph, which, by the way, the word means fiery. You kind of look at things like, for instance, you look in Ezekiel and you see these guys and these guys are, they're like on hot rods. They're like flying by, you know, and it's like fire and all these things. And it's like one of those moments, it's like this is clearly Ezekiel was like having a guy's dream at that moment. But they tend to be cherubs. I think that's interesting. But get this. If we knew that there was this one place where we were intimate with God, I mean this one super special place where we were super intimate with God, nothing between us, nothing, nothing at all between us. And now all of a sudden, all I think is there's a cherub here and there's a cherub here and there's this flaming, twisting sword. I don't even know what that is. I get the samurai vision in my own head. But what's clear is you're not getting through it. I mean, that's kind of the idea here. And I kind of think, and I think, man, but on the other side of those two is where God is, where we were intimate. And I'm thinking, oh, I could just be there. And we haven't seen that since. And now God says, I really want to meet with you. So here, let's build a place. Do you remember these guys? Now, they appear to have wings. That's clearly according to this. And it says that they're facing each other. And according to the text, it says, make the cherubim with two hammered work, which means that you're not molding this. You're hammering it out. You're beating this. It's gonna, you're going to have to beat this to make this happen. You make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. And one cherub on one end, one cherub on the other end. Make the cherubim at the two ends of it, one piece of the mercy seat. And the cherubim will stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. Faces of the cherubim shall be Toward the mercy seat. Now I find it interesting that God makes clear that there's one on one end and one at the other, and in between is a seat. Now ultimately, we'll know by the time this thing is enacted by the end of Exodus, it's going to be covered in blood. Strange thing. This beautiful golden seat that will be covered in blood. And there will be an angel on one side and an angel on another, and there'll be this bloody seat that will be on top of the broken law. And God says, I'm going to meet you there. There's this broken law. There's going to be this which I'm going to sit on, which is mercy with your faith. It's going to be covered in blood. 
sit tight because I'm looking for one angel in one spot at the left and one angel at the right. Hmm. John 20, verse 12. It's Mary. The rest of the women have gone. She's still there weeping at the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, one sitting at the head and the other at the feet where Jesus had lain. The irony of the whole thing is there's one angel on one side, one angel on the other, and a bloody seat in between them. And they say, he's not here. Because he's risen. See, Jesus' date that he's setting us up all the way here with, 1,400 years before, so there are going to be two angels, and in between them there will be a bloody seat. And until I fill that bloody seat, I'll meet you there. But then from that point on, we'll never have to be apart again. God knew this. So, put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony. Again, that will be the law, which I will give you. And then the last verse. There I will meet with you. Oh, listen. There are several words to meet. There is the word to encounter, to bump into, and we have different words in our own language. We can joke about it because we're actually rather loose with them. Yeah, I bumped into Shirley yesterday, and I'll say, was she okay? She'll say, well, how did you know she wasn't well? I'm like, well, actually, I just said it because you bumped into her. I mean, we kind of get the idea what that meant was, I would assume that meant that you weren't intending on encountering Shirley. It was more serendipitous. But you encountered her nonetheless and probably didn't spend the rest of the afternoon with her or you wouldn't have bumped in. We, we ran into each other, but we spent the day together. They're different words. There are words for choice encounters. There are words for chance encounters. There are words for appointments. And then there are words for serious appointments. Remember your parents? When they say, we need to talk. And you're like, oh no. That's never good. You know they're not going to sit down and go, I've decided today to give you a new Xbox. Usually we need to talk means you've done something wrong. This word for meet here is the word for when a man proposes to his wife to be. It's an ordained encounter where the result of it will be intimacy. It's for whatever it's worth, and I don't want to get weird about it, it is also the word that is used, yeah, for when two people are intimate. The reason I say that is God wants to be more than just some distant relative. He's so into you that at your permission, he'll move into you. He goes, oh, I just want to be with you. I just want it to be you and me. And you might say, well, okay, how does that work? How could God have a one-on-one with me and a one-on-one with you at the same time? And I'd say, he's God. He's bigger than my math. Now, the problem so far has been, we've read the text for this, but notice what it'll say, and we'll, we'll finish the text here in just a moment. But he says, all right, so I'm going to meet with you at this place. So we've kind of got an image in our head. Anyone want to guess how big that thing is? Sam, Jeffrey, will you help me out, please? 
Well, by God's grace, someone in our fellowship is kind enough to have put quite a bit of time in this. And they wanted to help you out. Because it'll be one thing for you to be able to get an image in your mind, and it will be another thing for you to actually get an image in your eyes. So, friends, oh, and hold on, you guys, you're almost right. What are they doing wrong, guys? Does anyone know? That's right. These poles are yours, and you can go ahead and turn around. There you go. Nice. Woo-hoo. And you can actually, now you've done it the hard way. You can put it underneath you this way, but either way. The question is, how are we going to get you through here? But you know what? Good luck with that. You might have actually had to go over your head with it. Now, I have a couple exhortations about this I want to end with, but we have to go with our, finish our text. You definitely don't want to look inside, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Go ahead and see if you can put it on those, if you would, please. Thank you, my Levite brothers. To scale, this is your ark. Now, there are some at the Temple Institute would probably going potty right now if they knew that we were doing this, but that's another story. Thank you, gentlemen. You can leave it there for the moment. Hopefully, it'll, if it falls over, if the oxen stumbles, we're all in trouble. Don't touch it. When God had a box like this made, my question to you is, what size does this look like? Does it look like any other box to you of any sort? It is roughly the size of a family bone box or ossuary. Do you think there's a reason for that? Because in this burial box is the broken law. And at the broken law is death. James will say, if you keep all the law but break one, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. If you have a stained glass window and you throw a rock through it, how much of the glass window are you going to have to replace? The whole thing. So God has this thing built. And as this thing is built, it's going to be put in a room called the Kodesh Kodeshim, or the Holy of Holies. And this particular box will actually, according to Hebrews, have three things on it, or in it actually. Although somewhere through the text, narratively, we'll find the one that's consistent will be the broken law, or the law. But there will also be a bowl of manna and Aaron's rod that had budded in here as testimony as well. But God says, I'm going to meet you, and I'm going to meet you right here, in between the angels, where the blood is. Don't miss that. And he goes, that's where we're going to not just chance encounter each other. I have an appointment with you because I want you to be mine. And with that, this is not, you're not going to stumble into that. This is going to be a choice you're going to need to make. Now, follow me in on this. This is how it ends, right? I'll meet with you and I'll speak to you from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything in which I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Now, I'm going to do this quick just for the sake of our time here because I want to be sensitive to where we're at. But actually, I think we're doing quite well. Follow me on this. This ark will be set in the, the smallest room, the Holy of Holies, in our first tabernacle. Solomon will build the first 
temple. And when he does, this will same, the same ark will go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. And then that temple will be destroyed in 586 B.C. Then another temple will be rebuilt by Zerubbabel, aggrandized to 1.2 million square feet by King Herod. And when that happens, there's a high priest who doesn't even believe in God going into the Holy of Holies on his one day. (laughs) Didn't know I had my own theme song, did you? It was dramatic. And not only that... And you wonder, how could a crazy high priest like Annas or Caiaphas that will actually be responsible for seeing Jesus murdered, how could a guy like that go into the Holy of Holies and not get slaughtered dead? Because this wasn't there. Nowhere since Solomon's temple has the ark been. Okay, we know where it is. Thank you, Indiana Jones. (laughs) Just kidding. Okay, follow me on this, though. In 1 Samuel, well, we have a tent. Now, pray for the person who's made this, in case they have time, because maybe they'll make the other thing. We'll see. There's three other pieces of furniture in the, temp- in the tabernacle. Those are the only ones, because everything after that gets really, really big. But listen to this, please. There is some place where there's this beautiful bloody seat where someone's going to meet with God and it's going to be more than God's like his arms are crossed where he's clearing his throat and deciding whether to slay you or smite you. This is a place where God speaks with you. Now, now we know first and foremost that the next place we're going to see is, is going to be the cross because ultimately the cross is going to be the bloody seat where Jesus dies and that seat is where our price is paid. And now that seat that, where, that is covered in the blood but first covered in faith is going to be our own heart where Christ makes his home. And it'll be there then that he reigns and speaks with us. But can I say here's the danger of an ark. And if I were to call this whole thing something, can I call it the wonder and the warning of an ark? Is that there are these places where you encounter God. And he speaks to you. My prayer is that would be here as well. This would be one of them. But there are some dangers in that. And we can learn quickly from three quick places in First Samuel the warnings of this ark too. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and you're in the book of Exodus, you're going to flip forward. Now, Exodus will go Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then after that, it'll be Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then the Samuels. And you want to go to 1 Samuel chapter 4 for a second. I have three quick exhortations. And then we'll bring this around to prayer. Could you imagine this being full of, I mean, just shining with gold? I'm not the kind of person that's ever lusted after gold. So I actually dig the gold spray paint actually works for me but when you have something imagine where it's like carrying it how it would glisten of course they're going to cover it in skin by the way so the only glory is going to be seen i mean most of us we're not even going to see this a high priest the kohen gadol is going to see it most of us we're not going to ever see it we're going to it's going to be covered even when they carry it but follow me on these three things but first of all think for a moment first where it is lately has there been any place, Christian, where you go like, this is the place, I just know if I'm here, I'm going to encounter him. He's going to speak to me. Prayerfully, that would be here. But to be honest, my room right now, 
I, I mean, I would sit in my office, but we don't have heating, and lately that would be a bad place to be. We use it as a meat locker. Um, <laughs> but upstairs in the room, I can open up my window, and I can hear those birds sing. I've turned off my music because I have this other music playing outside, and that's why I do my studies these days. And I just know he's going to speak to me, and I just get quiet. It's an amazing place for me. Israel, for me, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, there's just something about that place. It's kind of an arc to me. I mean, I know that if I'm at the Sea of Galilee, give me one week there, I'm ready for the rest of the year. Um, and it gets so quiet there at sunrise. You can literally hear the wind underneath a mud duck when it flies. It's unbelievable. And it's there that I'm, I'll actually just break the silence with, all right, no, I'm gonna, I want to get quiet here. Are we Okay. I just want to make sure that if there's anything I'm overlooking in the, in the passion and in the pace of things that right now I just want to say, shape it, mold it, tell me, is there anything that doesn't line up? It's amazing how many times the Lord will actually tell me the things I'm doing right. But he isn't just there to critique my bad things. He's a father. But that's one of my places. Oh, I could just drink it in. But what are yours? Those places where you just kind of know, this, this moment, this is going to be it. Well, let me give you a couple warnings. Three challenges in regards to those things. Maybe it's a song. I just know if we sang this song, man, I'm just going to encounter God. I'm going to be on my face. Well, whatever it is, listen. The first Samuel 4, Israel is fighting. And they're battling the Philistines, the most common enemy that they have. Always seems to be flaring up all the time with these guys. And with that, they're not winning. And they're kind of struggling with this. Now, we don't read that they've ever sought the Lord in prayer about the battle. We don't read that there's any particular leader in this battle. All we read is that we're on this battle together and we're losing. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, turn there if you would, please, verse 3. When the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, or Shiloh, which means to rest, to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Here's my first challenge to you. I bet you heard it in there, didn't you? That one little word that could easily be missed, but so important. When it comes, it will save us. Can, can I just say this? And, and again, I've never been known for just trying to massage you with kind of nice words, um, so I start now. I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of the one you're praying to. Because if the power was just in your prayer, you could pray to that wall. If the words were good, the wall isn't going to answer you. The power is in who you pray to. Prayer is in it. It's also a vehicle. Vehicles can be good. Vehicles can run you over or they can carry things. Choose where you want to be in front of it or in back of it. But I don't want to forget who it is. And here's the issue. The first is keep it connected. That's my challenge to you. Connected to the Lord. Because the ark was the issue, it was going to save them. But it wasn't connected to the Lord anymore. It was it. It's taking out your cross when the vampire comes because the cross... Ah, Come on, it's a, it, yeah, I'm sure that Madonna is safe because she wears one. I mean, I, I look at this and I turn to think, wait a minute here. The issue is not what you wear. It's got to be connected to the one to whom it belongs or it's meaningless. 
That becomes the problem in a lot of what happens in tradition. Even some of the most beautiful traditions, because the tradition itself started because of something awesome. And we have them too. But if it loses its connection, it becomes more than meaningless. It becomes an obstacle. It becomes the it you trade God in for. And there's the problem. And now you have to hop over the incense. Now you have to hop over the Latin. You have to hop over the candle lighting. You have to hop over the pitcher or the whatever. And now it's like, what in the world are we doing with statues in our buildings? What in the world are we doing? This doesn't even make sense. I went to a parochial school and I got into so much trouble. I was roughly my daughter's age and now I realize how dangerous that could be. And, and, I, and I would ask him questions. And I'd understand they were genuine questions, but at nine, you're not really good at how you ask them. And it was questions like, so why do you light candles? Why don't you just turn on the lights? It's quicker. I thought it was helping him out. Like they were going to go, oh, what was I thinking? They wanted me to actually serve around the altar. I mean, here was, I had no concept of God, and I looked in the priest's you know, office, and there was a half bottle of Manischewitz. Now, I understand, I was kind of raised around the bar, so I kind of had a different view of things. And my question, which probably, I'll granted, sounded very disrespectful, but, but it was genuine, was, so why does the priest, so why is he the only guy that gets to get drunk around here? Now, I agree with you, I wouldn't recommend questions with that little tact, but they were genuine questions. Those things were not connected anymore to anything. And I want to ask, what about the things you do? Are they connected anymore? Are they done just because you do you pray? I mean, when was the last time you really thanked God for your food before you ate it? And not just, all right, Lord, thanks for the prayer. And the kids are like, come on, it's getting cold. When was the last time your prayer was not just, now I lay me down to sleep? You get so busy sometimes, they get kind of rote. And I remember once, we were kind of in a situation, we were being rushed, and someone was like, Quan, quick, pray. And I almost started thanking God for the food, and we weren't even in front of food. I was just, because it was just like the thing to do, right? Like, God, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And there was the problem with this. Oh, please, please don't make it in it. The moment your walk moves from a hymn to an it, you're in such trouble. Me too. Can I say, listen, that's a church too. We would love, I mean, our prayer has always been, you would come in, you would always feel comfortable, just not in your sin, me either, but you would encounter God here. But this church isn't going to save you from anything, but it is a vehicle of the one who does. So be careful. So what, what does God do? He's really quick in letting you know that God-like things don't replace God. So the ark doesn't save them, but the ark is actually taken captive by those poor Philistines. And God has some mercy on these guys because they're ignorant. And I kid you not, don't believe me, search the scripture. It says he strikes them with hemorrhoids. I know you think, really? Well, the word is, if you read it in the old King James, is emrods. You can decide for yourself what that means. And I'm not trying to be crass. The term is often translated tumors. It really doesn't matter what it is. What we can all be sure of is it's a rotten deal. And sooner or later, the people in that Philistine 
ash. Now, by the way, the first thing they do is they put it in the, like they do with any spoil, they put it in the temple of their god. The next day they go back, their god has actually fought this thing, it's half fish, half guy, and it's fallen on its face before it, and they had to pick up their god and put him back into place. Listen, if you have to pick up your god and put him back into place, you got the wrong one. So, so there they go, putting him back into place, and they think, well, that's a little strange, okay. The next day they come back, not only is he down on his face, but his head is ripped off. Has his arms stuck at the threshold. That's where you walk in and they're like, whoa, I almost stepped on my God's face. And like classic, brilliant, pagan mentality, they say, we need to do something about this. Here's the new law. Nobody steps on the threshold from this point on. That's where they go with it. Right? So from this point on, it's like everyone that goes into Dagon's thing now with his like glued on head and his stapled on hands, they have to go, Remember when his head was there? Nobody got it. But you know that, right? Inverness Market here in Camden. The girls are getting drunk, falling down, breaking their teeth. And they say, you know what the problem is, right? Oh, not that they're getting drunk. The problem is they're wearing high heels. Let's give them flip-flops. I kid you not, that was last summer, right? So now you have a bunch of gals that are going to the hospital with broken teeth and skinned heels because they have flip-flops on. That's always awesome. You get the idea. It's like putting, you know, it's like, oh, you have cancer. Here's a plaster. And well, so... Here, so here's the deal. It gets taken. So they go, and just like classic Ashta, what they do, they go, well, let's just send it to one of the other towns. <laughs> so they send it over there. And I understand all these poor guys are hurting. It says when it became aware. How does that become aware? I mean, everyone's kind of walking in, kind of like this, and they're like, how's it going? And they're like, not so good. How about you? Wow, you have a, t- you have a two? What about? And you realize everyone's kind of walking slowly and kind of, and you're like, oh, man, really? Do you think that's the ark? Let's get it out of here. So they move it to the next. In all five major cities of the Philistines, this thing happens. And rats, to make it worse. So some people think it must be bubonic plague because of the rats. Well, just the same. It's bad. We could be sure of that. So they get to the fifth one, and they're like, whoa, whoa, what are you trying to kill us? Come on, really? We need to, you know what? Let's do this. Let's see if we can deduce something. Every place this thing goes, we all get hemorrhoids and rats come. Is if God, you can't get an idea what God's view of them at the moment was. You're kind of a pain in the rump and you're a rat. Anyway, so, okay, so follow me. So all of a sudden they're like, well, you know what we need to do? Let's, okay, it's, maybe it's coincidence. So what is what we're going to do? We're take a couple cows that have really never been away from their mothers, baby cows. And what we're going to do is we're going to take the mothers away. And you know mother cows, they want to be with their children. And we're going to put a cart behind them. We're going to stick this thing on the cart. And then as we stick this thing in the cart, the most normal thing for the cows to do is they want to go back. And if it goes back to, if they go back to be with their calves, this was all chance. Right. But if they coincidentally just happen to walk over to Israeli territory, we know it's actually the ark. It's their God. All right. But we can't do it empty-handed because, I mean, they've, we've been, their God's been, their hand, his hand's been heavy on us. We need to give an offering. Well, what do we do? Well, we have to give an offering of what we experienced. Five golden rats and five golden tumors. Now, I, and they put them in a box. Okay, now which one of you, you go, you're in Bethshemesh and you're like harvesting your grain and there you are and okay, I got some wheat. Hey, the ark is coming. What's this little box? Golden rats and what are these things? Anyone get, do you think anyone's going to guess? The strangest thought. Okay, so, 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 that's where, so that's our first thing was, okay, keep it connected. But then we get to the second, and all of a sudden, as the ark starts to come back, something really strange happens. It winds up in Beth Shemesh, turn to chapter 6. 
One of the most amazing verses, and we're getting close to the end now. And 1 Samuel 6, verse 19, as it gets into the town, ultimately what they'll do is they'll take the cart, they'll break it into pieces to make firewood, and they'll sacrifice the cows. And it says, Then they struck the men of Bethshemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people. And the people lamented, because the Lord had struck. Now, how many people do you think can see into this at the same time? Now, Beth Shemesh is a bit hilly, but this, I mean, the image I have in my head, a killer can't be that God killed them is the moment they saw it. Because if, let's just say a thousand people could see into this thing at once. You're up on a hill, everybody take a look. They all look and they drop dead. Lo and behold, another thousand people walk by and go, look, there's a thousand dead people. Let's crawl over them and see what they were looking at. They crawl over, oh, and they drop dead. 50,070 people. So that means 50,069th guy crawls over a mountain of dead people and goes, what do you think they're looking at? Which one of you thinks maybe we shouldn't know? Right? So here's the second thing. Keep it holy. This was God's and it wasn't to be tampered with. Hey, there's a place where you meet with God, whatever that is. First and foremost, that's the cross. The cross is intended to be a place that is a place that's horrible, but it is intended to be a holy place. It's not just something you flip upside down and just try to make fashion with. Let it mean something. Keep it attached to the one to whom it belongs, but second, and keep it holy. Don't just be like, Jesus is my homeboy, wash it up. Because sooner or later, God's like, let me show you what, I don't, I don't you know, it's like, I'm still holy. Because in heaven, they don't go homeboy, homeboy, homeboy. They say, holy, holy, holy. I mean, it's serious. And these guys all fall on their faces. This isn't them going, what's up? It's like, boom, I'll tell you what's down. Everybody on their faces. The most amazing thing about God is how holy, is he, how holy he is and he's still willing to be with us. It's that irreconcilable paradox that makes him so awesome to me. Well, here's the third. So finally, they're like, well, let's get this thing out of Beshemesh, so let's get it out of there. So you know what they do? They take this thing and they actually put it on a cart because that's how it came into Beshemesh. Remember, cows on a cart? So they said, well, now that we've got it back, let's put it on a cart, we'll get it on some cows, and we'll get it back to where it belongs. But the problem is, that's not the way God said it's to be carried. How is it supposed to be carried? On the shoulders of men. And if it's to be carried on the shoulders of men, this thing is not to be put on a program or some lifeless little vehicle to get from one place to another. This thing needs to be not just connected to him, this thing needs to be connected to me. Do you get it? And all of a sudden, I start to realize, there's my last challenge. There's my issue with this, is God, I always want to be connected to you. And if this thing isn't connected to you anymore, it's not important to me. I'm going to stay away from it. What's important is you. And you could use a friend. You could use a relationship. You could use a circumstance that will really get me to you. You could use a place. You could use a song. There's so much you could use. But in the end of it all, Lord, it's always going to be about you. And if I'm not in this, it's worthless. Because if this ark stayed in that room and no one ever got near it, there would be God dwelling among the cherubim between the, you know, above the cherubim or above the mercy seat between the cherubim and he'd be there by himself. 
But that's not what God created you for or me. So please hear me out as we go to prayer. First and foremost, there was an ark that carried people away from the wrath of God. And what can I just say? It wasn't Noah's ark's. It was Noah's ark. It wasn't Noah's ark and his friend Shimei's ark. It was just Noah's. And in those days, when the rain started to come, you weren't going to be upset that there wasn't more than one option. You would be upset you said no to the one option that was clear. You'd say, I want a rowboat. I want to grab a piece of something and float on it. Don't let go. I'll never let go. Whatever it is, in the end of it all, let's just be honest. When God says, here's your way out, stop arguing with Him over another option. He's given you a way out. Pick it. And every one of us deserve God's wrath because we are in and of ourselves children of wrath. We deserve that wrath because we're selfish, rotten people. At least, can I say this? If you're not, be honest. I'm at least that much. I got that much going for me. At least I'm honest to know who I am without Him. But there's a way out. And that way out is a bloody place a place covered in blood. It was the blood of God Himself. Because He loved you so much, He'd rather die than without you. In the second case, then there's a wrath of man. And God promised in all of that, if you think about it, if you could just be sealed in a helpless little baby, sealed in all of that, God would actually protect him. Can I just say, there's a day when the wrath of man is coming. And when the wrath of man is coming, God actually has a way out from there too. But you have to be a child. And you have to come as a child And as you come as a child, he'll wrap you up and take you away. And can I just say, he's got that plan for you if you're his. And when that day comes and man's wrath comes, I'm going to be gone. You're welcome to join me. But in the end of it all, it all boils down to a bloody seat and for people who are willing to come because that's where we meet them. Now listen, as we go to prayer, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? Have you accepted the gift of the one who bled and died for you so that you could be set free? If you have been set free, can I just say today the Lord would like to establish your heart as His ark where blood flows and where God reigns. A place where He can meet with you and speak with you all the time as you open His Word, as you're in fellowship. God wants to do that. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of your beautiful word and this ark, God, that we're going to see throughout text and how people like so much, Lord, will take things that you have used and and worship it instead of you. And Lord, don't let us be those people. Don't let us fall short today and and be all about a doctrine or be all about a a denomination or a non-denomination or all about a church or all about whatever. First and foremost, we want to be about Jesus because we recognize without Jesus, none of this means anything. So Lord, I just pray today. I pray for myself. I pray for every believer here. I pray, Lord, that we would embrace you. And as we embrace you, Lord, that you would purify our faith without even having to send us into the trial. But give us that heart of just loving you and you alone and anything that's attached to you then. Lord, I pray that this month, for those who are willing, Lord, that as we go on this beautiful challenge, Lord, in Romans 12, that you would truly make these things come alive and make us people who would be set free from our own bondages, 
people who embrace you with all of our passion and find ourselves loving you with all of our guts. And right now, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus or you're not sure if you have, but but you can walk out of here sure, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And as this prayer goes forth, my challenge to you today is to simply at the end of it all say, Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree, let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. And here it is. God in heaven, I'll confess to you, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. And therefore, I'm guilty before you. And I know that I have the right to incur your wrath. I have earned it. But you love me. And you have provided a way out of your wrath through the blood of your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, who died on the cross for my sins and the sins of the whole world. And so, because He was willing to pay the penalty for me, I say yes for His penalty payment. And as He's paid that price for me, I say yes. As He's risen again from the dead, I say yes to the new life now that You have for me. A life where You were enthroned. A life where You speak and I hear. And God, in that, make me Yours, completely Yours that I would celebrate you as you celebrate over me. So I surrender myself to you and I say, yes, here I am, Lord, I'm yours. Have me, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.